friends, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read beginning in verse 25. Hear now God's word. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that this wedding language would free us to see the church as you see the church, as your spotless, resplendent bride, and that we would enjoy that now and anticipate the day in which we will be joined to you, husband and wife, at that great banquet forever. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and it feels kind of odd to continue in our series in Ephesians on Easter weekends when the words death and resurrection don't even appear in our verses. But wait a minute, they're here, they're just hiding from us. We just don't readily see them. In verse 25, Jesus gave himself up for the church. That's death language. Jesus died. And in verse 27 it says, so that he might present himself, the church, to himself. That's resurrection language. Jesus is now alive. So Jesus' death and resurrection, they're here in our passage. They remind us that Easter weekend is the church's hope and glory for this life and the life to come. We're going to look at these verses and see exactly how his death and resurrection makes that possible. Let's start by talking about Jesus' death from our passage. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world. But Ephesians 5.25 narrows the focus and says, For Christ so loved the church. For Christ loved the church. You know, I think all of us have spent our lives building an impression of God who he is, what he's like, what he's done, we build that from somewhere. We can't help ourselves but build that impression. I love how Tristan shared that this morning, that that she couldn't help herself as growing up, as her grandma took her to church, to think about who God was, um, perhaps as a being who is frowning upon her. But all of us do that. Whether it's from our earthly parents or grandparents, whether it's from influential figures in our life, we can build it from our workplace or our school or a teacher or television or something that we've read. All of us are building impressions about God that tell us a distinct story of who he is and what he is like. For some of us, that picture is of a distant being. He's far away from us. And he's aloof, and he's not concerned about the details of our lives. For some of us, God is more sinister. He's cunning, or he's unpredictable, or he does things that we can't imagine that he would do. For some of us, it feels like this God we've made in our minds is perpetually upset with us and the people that we have turned out to be. Worldly impressions of God 
die so hard because God himself is otherworldly. It takes a long time to kill an impression of God because he is wholly unlike anything we can imagine. You take these life experiences, you take the suffering we've had in our lives, you've taken a series of events and the family members that God has given us, and we we build these little towers of Babel in our hearts and minds to reach heavenward, to seem who God might be to us, and none of them can compare to God laying that foundation afresh and telling us himself who he is. God introduces himself to us in Ephesians 5.25 as the one who loved the church. God is love. Christ himself is moved by the church. Christ is earnest for the church. Christ is jealous for and protective of and passionate for the church. If that weren't so, We wouldn't be here. If God had not first moved towards us, there would be nothing in our lives this morning to respond to him for. This description of God is otherworldly. It's actually kind of unsettling for us to hear because God, by talking about his love in this way, is changing the rules of the game that we've played our entire lives. We're, we're accustomed in our lives to getting what we deserve. We work for something, or we make a mistake, good or bad, and we get what we deserve. I work really hard at my job, and every two weeks I get a paycheck, and I deserve that. If somebody confronts me about something stupid that I've done, I walk away and say, I deserve that. I get a speeding ticket, I deserve that. I get an award at work, I deserve that. I gain 10 pounds, it's like, you know, I deserve that. And if I lose 10 pounds, I definitely deserve that. What I do earns what I get. I am completely accustomed to and comfortable with that world. And along comes unmerited, undeserved, unearned love from God. And it is unsettling to us. Because it changes the rules of the game. And God's love is completely and entirely outside my control. I can't muster this. I can't make this happen. I can't create this. It comes to me from outside of myself. It's driven by God. And God is proclaiming himself to be that good and Christ that real so that when he finds the object of his affection, the church, he moves mountains to win and obtain her. We hear that in his love, verse 26, Christ sanctifies us and Christ cleanses us. This is what he does with his love towards the church. He sanctifies us. That word means to set apart as holy or to consecrate. This is what Jesus does on the object of his affection, the church. He sets us apart and we are then called Paul's favorite term for Christians in this letter, which is saints. You church are saints. You are cleansed saints. He calls us that nine times in Ephesians. We are saints. We are God's holy ones. We're not that because we've earned that. 
We're not that because we've proven that to be true. We're that, he says, because Christ cleanses us by washing us of water with the word. Now that can refer to baptism, as we're going to see here this morning in the 1030 service. That can refer to ritual washing. That can be like a metaphor for cleansing a bride before her wedding day. But whichever it is, It is Christ making the movement towards us, water in the word, to clean us in his gospel. That truth is available to everyone sitting here this morning. This truth of God's love, God's movement towards us, is available to all of us. If we come to God and admit our sin, if we agree with him that we have rebelled against him, if we trust that God in turn takes our sin and places it on his son Jesus, and that Jesus absorbs the judgment of that sin, God says that in Christ, I deem you a saint. I set you apart. I consecrate you. I clean you. I wash you. I cleanse you. And you are in Christ a saint before me, reconciled to God. That's true for anybody here this morning to receive. That's Jesus' death. Let's talk about his resurrection. That's why we're here on Easter morning, to hear about Jesus' resurrection. When I first became a believer so many years ago, I wondered to myself, first in private, and then I started asking people, do you have to believe in both Jesus' death and his resurrection to be a believer? Like, is it possible to just believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he stayed dead and you can still be a believer? That was an earnest question I had because I figure... If you only have to believe in Christ crucified and not Christ crucified and risen from the dead, that would be a lot more palpable for people to believe in 21st century America today. 21st century people just don't believe that someone can die and be dead for three days and then rise again from the dead. And we've got a little pride surrounding the fact that we don't believe that because we've built this impression of the first century world like they were more susceptible to believe that, right? This was back in Jesus' day. It was before modern science and people were gullible and they believed in miracles. But like after advances in modern science, like when we discovered penicillin, that's about the time we stopped as modern human beings believing that someone could die and rise again from the dead. But the truth is, as the gospel stories tell us, nobody believes that dead people can come back from the dead. Nobody believes that. Not in the first century, not in the 21st century, not in the Roman world as the Romans sought to make sense of this, not in the Jewish world as the Jewish leaders sought to make sense of this, not even Jesus' disciples, even though Jesus had told him he would do this, really truly believed when they saw the empty tomb that someone can die and be dead and come back from the death. Jesus' death and his resurrection has always been a stumbling block of faith. It always has, for now 2,000 years. But there are verses like Romans 10.9 that make it clear that you cannot have the one without the other. 
that believing that Jesus actually bodily, physically rose from the dead is essential to saving faith. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Jesus is risen. That is essential to saving faith. And the reasons we believe that Jesus had to rise from the dead on Easter Sunday are many. The Bible gives us a bunch of reasons as to why we can't just have a Jesus who dies, but we must have a Jesus who rises from the dead. We know that he does this to defeat sin and death to ascend into heaven at the right hand of his father. We know he must rise from the dead so that he can take David's throne. We know that he rises from the dead so that he can assume the Levitical priesthood. We know that he's alive today so that he can intercede on behalf of the church so that one day he will make his enemies a footstool so that he will appear to us on the final day. These are many, many reasons why Jesus had to rise from the dead. But Ephesians 5.27 adds yet another reason to that growing list for the resurrection. One of the reasons Jesus had to rise from the dead on Easter Sunday is to make it to his wedding day. Jesus rose from the dead to appear at his wedding. He wouldn't miss that for anything. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's wedding language. Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. We are prepared now for that great wedding. We will be received at that great wedding. Friend, I can't tell you what I wouldn't give to look out over this church body and myself and our shared collective stories that we've confessed with each other and see the church as Christ sees the church and not the church and myself as I see us. You get this incredible description in Ephesians chapter 5 about the spotless bride of Christ. And then I look in the mirror with respect to my own sin and I see real, gross, silly, selfish sin in my heart. I see pride and I see lust and I see anger and I see bitterness. I I see all the things that God is calling me to do in my life that I just don't do. And and the person that God is calling me to be in my life that I'm just not becoming. And I see all the things that Jesus is pleading with me to give up that I just can't bear in my life to part with. I see dark, brooding, entangling damning sin in my life everywhere I look. And on this Easter morning, God speaks this word of gospel grace. The sin we see in our lives, and even the sin that's rampant in our lives that we can't now see, is the very sin that is cleansed by water and the word of Jesus' death, 
so that the bride at her wedding day picture is truly how God in Christ sees the church. We are his spotless, perfect, beautiful bride, dressed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's what he sees when he sees the church. Paul is writing this 2,000 years ago, and he's writing it as a Jew who grew up in a Roman world, who interacts with the Greek world that came before him. And what Greek culture and Roman culture and Jewish culture of Paul's day share with our culture today is that weddings are a big freaking deal. Like across centuries, across cultures, they are a big deal. No matter which culture you came from, you are going to spend more money on a wedding than you were planning to spend on it. It doesn't matter what language you speak, your mother and your mother-in-law are going to lose their ever-living minds to get everybody ready in place for a wedding. We, we share this across cultures. We, we immediately understand what Paul is talking about. We love elaborately preparing a bride for her wedding day. We can't help but see her cleaned up and her hair done and makeup and a spotless dress and a little bit of tasteful bling. And and she appears to us as this angelic, dazzling being for the day. There's this moment in every wedding that I get goosebumps. And that is when the music changes and the mom stands And then the crowd stands and we all look to the back and the doors swing open and the bride appears and every eye is on her and she is perfect. She is perfect. Paul taps into that language and says, that's just the appetizer. That's a taste. That's an illustration of Jesus and his bride, the church. This is you and I. This is us appearing without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You and I are this bride now before Christ and we will be on the last day when we are presented to Christ as his bride Jesus is risen from the dead and he has done that to present us without spot or wrinkle on that wedding day. That's a beautiful scene. I want to close with a thought about the language here in our passage. And and to do this, I'm going to actually need some audience participation, okay? I know that's really hard for the 9 o'clock service, but we're going to try This is a shout out to our English and humanities majors that uh, grammar can make us better Bible readers. I'm going to take all the verbs from our verse, and if I had a whiteboard, we were going to put them in two categories, okay? I would write what God does, and then what man does, two columns, and then we'll put the verbs under each column, okay? So just picture the whiteboard. I'm going to say the verb... And I want you to answer whether this is God or man, okay? You're going to answer God or man. So let's practice. Verse 25 is the first verb. It is loved. If you need to peek, you can look at it. 
Who's doing the love? God or man? Okay, that was a little weak. God. Verse 25, gave himself up. God or man? Verse 26, sanctify. God or man? Verse 26, cleansed. God or man? Verse 27, presents. Is that God or man? All the verbs in our passage are God's. It's not like three out of four. It's not like four out of five. Every single one of them are God's action, God's movement towards us. I don't think you can grasp the grace of Easter until you come to grips with the verbs of Easter. All of this is born in God. All of this is acted from God. All of this movement comes from God to us. You and I are the spotless, resplendent bride of Christ because Christ loved the church. Let's pray together. This is true, Lord Jesus. You have loved us and pursued us. You've washed us and cleansed us. We are now sanctified, set apart, consecrated as your beloved saints. Would we enjoy that truth today? If we don't know that truth, would we come to believe it today and know that when you return on that final day, we will be joined to you as your bride without spot or wrinkle. Do this, surprise us in this, we ask, in Jesus' precious, holy, and risen name. Amen.